From the New Media Project at the NYU School of Medicine, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, Fool Me Once, Shame On You. Fool Me Twice, well, shame on you again. Because of the high symmetry between eyes, I think most of us intuitively would expect that a result from the first should help inform us about what we do for the second. First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Dr. Hennessy reports holding a patent on IOL calculation and a business which sells Palm software for this purpose. Did you know that you can get every episode of As Seen From Here as soon as it comes out and without ever having to visit a website? It's called subscribing and it's free. Each week, subscribers get As Seen From Here automatically loaded onto their iPods, MP3 players, and computers by using a program called a podcatcher. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the How Do I Listen button. Subscribing only takes a minute. Free podcatchers are available for Windows, Macintosh, and Linux computers. I've put links to download an excellent podcatcher on the How Do I Listen page of asseenfromhere.com. Then, within hours of my podcasting an episode, you'll have it too. Post-cataract refractive surprise presents its own set of therapeutic challenges. Do you perform a lens exchange to correct for residual refractive error? Of course, the first thing that any conscientious surgeon does is to review the lens calculations and make sure they were performed properly. Okay, let's say you've done that. What do you do with the second eye? There are two schools of thought here. One is to say that the refractive outcome of the second eye is independent of the first. The other is to view the refractive surprise of the first eye as a predictor of the second eye and to adjust, that is to say fudge, the lens calculations to account for a patient who is obviously an outlier. Michael Hennessy of the Prince of Wales Hospital in Sydney, Australia, has made a study of this question and has just published his results. Let's hear from him now. What are the common reasons for postoperative refractive surprise? So whether it's transcribing the data um, inaccurately so that it's the wrong patient and uh, the, the wrong measurements are used for a patient, or the wrong lens is picked up in theatre and one, a lens intended for a different patient is used in in another patient. So they're the common reasons from the sort of less serious to the more serious. There can be some physiologic reasons also for winding up with a refraction that's different from what you planned. Yeah, well, there can be the patients who uh, have had refractive surgery and naturally that'll usually come to light as part of the history taking. Uh, the other issue is just how well the formally um, account for the biological variability with eyes and for the vast majority of eyes, normal eyes, of course, the formulae have been optimised for normal eyes. So generally speaking, that's not a major issue. The, the patients where that becomes an issue will be the abnormal eyes or the unusual eyes, the very long eyes, the myopes or the very short eyes, the hyperopes. And the refractive surprise there, in a sense, isn't a surprise. The, the surgeon usually will be anticipating potentially greater difficulty with the accuracy of calculation. So, um, in a sense, I don't, I don't think of 
refractive surprises with unusual eyes as being a surprise more so than things that one would pay attention to as part of the normal preparation for surgery. We're going to be discussing retrospectively calculated IOL position. Can I have you explain that concept? In simple terms, when uh, I have been standing uh, ready to implant a lens in a patient and I know it's their second eye, I've always wondered what was really scientifically or mathematically the most rigorously accurate way to do that. And I was certainly taught by senior colleagues in my in my training who felt intuitively that it made sense to not only look at the results from the first eye, but take account of the um, error that was manifest compared with the expected result and incorporate that in their choice when they were implanting the second uh, lens. I've always wanted to accumulate enough data uh, of my own patients to analyse that fairly rigorously and to just address that question when I'm in theatre faced with that um, decision, should I put this lens in or should I make an adjustment in this choice based on what I can see of the results in the first. So I think it, the paper has addressed a very, very common question we all face as we are about to implant a lens and that is, can I trust what I'm going to do or should I make a, a minor adjustment based on my experience from the first eye? The idea of correcting one eye based upon the results from the first eye is predicated on the idea of refractive symmetry between the two eyes. Is there evidence of refractive symmetry between eyes? Yeah, well, the um, most of us, in fact, use that evidence by the systems we apply to our data to verify that the data looks sensible. So uh, in the paper, we show that uh, symmetry uh, from axial length measurements and keratometry and that's been reflected in almost 20-year-old recommendations, uh, those particularly, say, of Jack Holiday, where there's a fairly standard set of criteria to apply to our ocular measurements to be sure that the calculations we're going to make uh, using those measurements are likely to be as accurate as possible. So there's certainly very clear evidence that there's a high degree of symmetry. Uh, in terms of, of the study, uh, I was I guess in a sense a little surprised that the subtleties of that symmetry hadn't really been very extensively investigated in, in our literature. Has the symmetry between eyes been employed for surgical calculation outside of cataract surgery? Certainly. Um, uh, the refractive uh, accuracy of, for example, LASIK surgery has been um, examined uh, and some of the, that data we've um, quoted in our paper, um, uh, particularly the need to maybe adjust algorithms with um, LASIK surgery um, and so forth. Uh, so yes, it's certainly some uh, examination of these concepts elsewhere, but surprisingly little in cataract surgery. What were the objectives of your study, Michael? Our um, major objective was to uh, look at this question, should we use the results, refractive results from the first eye to make adjustments in the second? And as part of that strategy to look at the symmetry in both the biometric data, the length and keratometry measurements, the powers of lenses that were actually being implanted, as well as the um, uh, uh, predicted refractions, the power for emetropia, and the error of predicted 
refraction and the lens position constant. So we're looking at the symmetry of those values in our data set. Can I have you describe the design of your study? Uh, I have a very large database I maintain for our whole department's cataract surgery and uh, that database now has more than 10 years of accumulated data. Uh, out of that data set I identified first of all all the patients that had had bilateral surgery, then identified those that had had bilateral surgery and where they'd had the same lens implant and uh, looked at how complete all of that data was. So the first um, uh, when we first started the study, we were hoping to use the data from all the patients. It turned out there wasn't quite enough of the data had been followed up for all the other members of our department. The, the data for my patients was uh, very complete. So we ended up restricting our analysis to those patients, which were the patients of mine from that data set, uh, where over about a 10 year period they'd had uh, the same lens implants, the AMO uh, SI30NB implant uh, implanted in both eyes. You excluded sulcus placed intraocular lenses presumably because these lenses have a more anterior placement than lenses placed in the bag. Do you alter the power of the lenses you plan to insert when you realize that you're going to be putting them in the sulcus? Let's say do you shave off half a diopter from the intraocular lens power? All, almost all of the lens implants where I'm not happy with the uh, capsular integrity, I can get uh, uh, optic capture within the anterior capsular rexus. So because of that, uh, a lens where the haptics are in the sulcus and the optic is actually behind the anterior lens capsule, I actually don't make an adjustment for those, figuring that the position is likely to be far closer to that we normally achieve within the bag fixation. And it's one of the questions as my data set um, becomes large enough that I hope to analyse in more rigorous detail and perhaps even be able to report my findings from that. That would be great. What were your inclusion criteria for this study? Uh, the inclusion criteria were basically that the patients uh, had a good refractive outcome. So, for example, if they had poor retinal, uh, poor retinal findings, we excluded those because naturally that would make the refraction a little less precise. Uh, and for the sake of um, uh, selecting uh, optically more uh, sensible patients, we excluded the high refractive uh, asymmetry eyes preoperatively, so more than three diopters of astigmatism. Uh, we, we did subset analysis with those that were complete data and had um, uh, reasonable um, symmetry between the two eyes and looked at those that had less symmetry and it made very little difference to the results. So we actually did include in the presented data some of the, the higher refractive error patients. Michael, can I have you walk me through a retrospective calculation? Sort of step by step? Sure. The, um, I'll use as an example that the SRKT formula as published, the method of a constant calculation in that is based in fact, on the SRK2 published formula, and it doesn't include the internal adjustments that are made for axial length and keratometry. Now, it's actually not possible to rearrange the equation algebraically to arrive at an exact um, algebraic expression for um, the A constant retrospectively. So the way I've done that with the SRKT formula is to use what's called a numeric approach, and that is write a little algorithm in computer code 
look at the results and make small adjustments in the A constant until the error of the predicted refraction is then zero. So that means the axial length and the keratometry values are kept the same and the algorithm can be written to test making a small adjustment has it made it the error larger or smaller and to continue making those adjustments in the right direction until the error of predicted refractions below a, a suitably low level. So that's the way that it's possible to find the A constant with SRKT that properly incorporates its internal um, uh, adjustments for length and keratometry. Holiday is published with um, his set of formulae, uh, with his treatment of the um, axial length vergence formulae, he's published the exact solution, which is a somewhat complicated um, uh, solution to, to derive it, but he's published that. And so there's a very exact algebraic solution for the axial length vergence formula, where once one has the refractive result, the, the spherical equivalent refraction, the length and keratometry that were originally used, one can actually um, precisely algebraically calculate the A constant or the lens position value in that length vergence formula. Before we get to the bulk of the results, uh, let me ask this. How well did the biometrics correlate? How well did the biometrics for the right eye match the biometrics for the left eyes? Yeah, there's that, as one would expect, a very, very high interocular correlation. So across all of our variables, length or anything else. They were highly statistically significant and that's represented in the column in the paper uh, from the very high correlations with length and corneal power of greater than 0.97 for the Pearson correlation coefficient uh, to slightly lesser uh, degrees of correlation in terms of the, the actual power of the lenses and then decreasing for for calculated values such as the calculated value for the emetropic lens power uh, predicted refraction and so forth. So dropping down to a correlation between eyes of 0.4 for the SRKT A constant value. What were the results of your study? Yeah, so I think probably the, the best place to start with was we could characterise the length difference between eyes and that had a 95% confidence interval over the 121 patients of uh, plus or minus 0.46 millimetres. That is a little greater than the standard screening criteria, but of course these were all measurements where if they were unusual they were repeated and if they were confirmed they were still used. So that's why that value would be slightly greater than the normal screening criteria and so, so on. For corneal power, uh, a range from minus 0.75 to plus 0.65, uh, a range of 1.4 diopters in power. Uh, that's for the confidence interval. The lens implants that were used between the two eyes varied from a lower power in the second by up to minus 1.7, up to a higher power by plus 1.9. Uh, the amotropic lens powers between the two eyes varied from minus 1.39 to plus 1.52 for the SRKT formula and a co comparable level a little greater for the axial length virgins formula. The error of predicted refraction from minus 1.75 to plus 1.63 diopters SRKT and the A constant uh, difference between the two eyes, the confidence interval minus 2 to plus 1.87. One of the interesting statistics is that of course the axial length and the corneal power don't vary in parallel to one another and that's reflected in the fact that uh, the emetropic lens power value um, is a little smaller than the range you would expect 
converting length to, to, to diopters, the data does reflect that that symmetry, uh, that that the pairing of the eyes, that the length and keratometry can sometimes cancel one another in their influence on the length uh, in the power calculation of the eye. Uh, we then looked at the uh, correlation between uh, the difference between the two eyes of the um, of each of those values um, and and the mean of the two values. So we were also interested in the concept: well, if the two eyes have similar measurements, should we actually be using the average of the two uh, and explore that uh, correlation? And that turned out to not be statistically significant and to assist that analysis we actually identified two or three highly influential points on the data set and, and eliminated those where that seemed sensible and that's all documented in the paper as well. But in general when you compared the results that you would have gotten employing the error from the first eye to the calculation for the second eye, you found that the result that, that, that you got was, was worse. Is, is that right? No, it turned out in about half of them it was better and in about half it was worse. And so therefore, uh, whether we did that uh, by basing it on subsets or whether we looked at all the statistics, we, sh we saw a greater standard deviation in the adjusted A constant uh, overall when the when the compared with the unadjusted value so both looking at the comparisons as paired tests or looking at the number where it made it better the number made it worse both went in the same direction it was good for some and not good for others um, and that that reflects overall that intrinsically the eye will have a small degree of variability in the accuracy of its measurements but any difference overall is likely to be actually real rather than um, a measurement variation. And it's very hard, in fact, clinically on an individual patient to separate those. This paper demonstrates that, in fact, it's more reliable to just take at face value the measurements for the second eye. If there's been a dramatic error from the first eye, that needs attention and the eye should be remeasured. The eye about to be operated should again be remeasured and see whether the result from the first eye could be explained, for example, by a different set of measurements that, that better predict the result. And it's that effort with a refractive surprise that's more productive than just fudging, I guess would be the typical language that a surgeon might use, fudging the results from the first to try and use it to, to do the results in the second. Now, I know that you touched on this, but I'd like you to spell it out a little bit more. If the biometrics match to right and left eyes, then why did the refractive result in one eye not predict the refractive result in the second eye? Well, I think that's probably the part of the result that's, in a sense, counterintuitive. And it's why I think it's an important uh, study to have reported. That is that because of the high symmetry between eyes, I think most of us intuitively would expect that a result from the first should help inform us about what we do for the second. Now it turns out that the very small differences between eyes uh, actually is probably real. It reflects real differences in length and that because of that, 
and, and added on top of that the normal measurement error, it's almost impossible to accurately, particularly with ultrasound measurements, it's almost impossible to accurately adjust in the second eye for the results in the first. And mostly that will come from measurement inaccuracy, but even so, there are real differences between the two. Our study reflected, for the example, the fact that if an eye was out by a little bit from the first, and let's say that was influenced substantially by measurement error, making an adjustment adjustment for that in the second could actually, in a sense, almost doubly compound that error in the second eye. Uh, and rather than do that, it makes more sense, based on our data, to look at alternative explanations for the result in the first than just using them to uh, adjust for the lens power selected in the second eye. You describe the need to maintain a constant surgical environment. What does that mean? Well, the conventional uh, discussion about uh, lens power accuracy comes, I think, from the days of extracapsular extra surgery, where naturally the positioning of the lens was much less precise, and so things like the length and construction of the wound, the tension in the sutures, the method of capsular opening, and so forth, were all factors that ultimately did influence the lens. Now, I think that understanding of uh, the surgery persists, namely that there may be factors related to the operation itself that could influence the positioning of the lens. I personally believe that that's likely to be much less than it ever used to be before, namely with in-the-bag fixation of a uh, lens implant and with a sutureless uh, corneal wound, particularly where the surgeon can verify that there is real no change in astigmatism with their sutureless wounds, then generally speaking, that's unlikely to influence the accuracy of lens uh, power prediction, much less than it used to before. Probably the much more significant concern would be the equipment one is using. And so for the average surgeon using a set of measurement equipment in their own rooms, the major time they should be alert to any potential change would be when they're changing equipment. So they buy a new scanner or they shift from one machine to another, or if they're operating in two locations and they've got two different scanners in those two different locations, that's more likely to reflect some changes in length measurements. And that's verified by the paper from Norby, who travelled around the world having his eyes measured by a number of different colleagues and demonstrated quite a deal of variability in the measurements of just the one eye his own, or the one pair of eyes his own. The idea or the concept then of the surgeon uh, personalising their own lens constant as much as anything helps um, set their calculations to the any in inherent um, inaccuracies in their equipment. And again, my personal experience based on working in a number of locations and using different equipment is modern equipment that's available to us properly calibrated with proper calibration checks seems to influence the results much less. And I tend to find these days that when I use a lens implant and I check my surgeon constant, it's quite often close to the value um, that the manufacturer would would recommend. While we're on the subject of your personal practice, let, let me pose this question to you. 
a patient comes in, a 27 and a half millimeter eye, uh, for cataract surgery, you do cataract surgery in one eye, the refractive result was not what you had aimed for. You, of course, the first thing that you do, you recheck all of the measurements, everything checks out. It's time to do surgery on the second eye. Michael, what do you do? In that situation, have a fairly detailed discussion with the patient and will usually uh, indicate to them that in the more unusual eyes, the parameters, the, the, the um, confidence in the prediction accuracy is down. And so I'll typically have aimed in the first for a result that builds into it a fair range of uh, acceptable vision from, if I aim, let's say, for minus 0.5 or 0.75 in the first, it builds in quite a good range between uh, unaided correction uh, that's quite good if they get a slightly hyperopic result through to acceptable near vision if they get a more myopic result. Based on that, and again, reviewing the measurements and reviewing the accuracy of prediction, uh, if they've got some asymmetry, and of course the myopic eyes are perhaps more prone to this because of uh, the different shape factors, uh, I will then use that to adjust the targeted refractions. I'll review the results from the first review the accuracy, repeat the measurements if the predictability has been difficult, and depending on how all of those numbers stack up, they would be the patients I'd be more likely to seek uh, partial coherence uh, interferometry measurements as a further aid if, if the results have really been too difficult. I have a paper looking at the reproducibility of both contact and immersion results and have always felt that it's paying attention to the accuracy of the measurements that's the most important and believe that there's not quite the need for PCI techniques apart from the obvious advantages of high volume practice and all of the numbers being captured within the machine and reducing the risk for transcription errors. Well, Michael, thank you very much. My pleasure, Josh. I think your project is fantastic and I wish you every success with it. Michael Hennessy is staff specialist ophthalmologist in the Department of Ophthalmology at the University of New South Wales at the Prince of Wales Hospital in Sydney, Australia. His paper, Intraocular Power in Bilateral Cataract Surgery, Whether Adjusting for Error of Predicted Refraction in the First Eye Improves Prediction in the Second Eye, is in the December 2006 issue of the Journal of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Ask questions of Dr. Hennessy or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275. Or Skype, J Young MD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the New Media Project of the NYU School of Medicine and is edited by Joe Fry. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.